0: Hello and welcome to episode number 28 of Making Media Now, the Filmmaker's Collaborative Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. In this episode, I chat with documentary filmmaker, Michael Rossi. Now, Michael and I actually spoke last winter, but when I was listening back on our conversation, I thought that a lot of what Michael had to say would fit in really well with a graduation speech. I don't think he was doing this on purpose, but he made a lot of insightful commentary around things like paying attention to what you pay attention to, balancing your passion with a careful cultivation of craft, and learning to recognize why you're doing what you're doing. Anyway, those comments struck me as being particularly useful, not just for your career, but for life in general. Take a listen and see if you agree. So, Michael has spent the last 20 years producing, directing, shooting, and editing national programs for public television. In 2012, he received an Emmy Award for his work as a coordinating producer of the children's engineering series Design Squad. Most recently, he received the 2020 Webby Award for his work as producer, director, and editor of Stories from the Stage, a live storytelling series in its fourth season on PBS. Here's a trailer for that fourth season.
1: Okay, so I'm going to start that rolling. Can you hear me now? Hello? It is recording at this moment. Tell me how to frame Okay, it's starting. I'm coming to you from my van uh, because of our fabulous internet in Parks, Arizona. I want to say I was excited, but. Oh, it
0: was so good. And then I messed it up.
1: These images fed the white kids in my neighborhood ammunition to terrorize me, even in a game of tag. I struggled and I strained. And then I looked for help,
0: but I wasn't going to cry. I was not going to give him the satisfaction.
1: Like millions of Americans, I lost my bread and butter job through a Zoom call. She had this very intent look on her face and she said, I'm concerned about how rapidly you're breathing. I met and fell in love with a redhead woman who also happens to be Jewish. Did I mention I'm Palestinian? This was not how it was supposed to happen. I thought that we would get donuts and refreshments provided by the polling station. The first time I ever
0: felt like I didn't belong somewhere was in my own country. So
1: I tell my friends a couple hours later, I'm going to be a candidate too. And they go, what? You as a politician? You're having a laugh. And my own family saying how they loved my son so much that they didn't even notice that they are black. I'd buy the finest bottle of Bayesian rum, pour us each a glass on his back deck and casually mention, hey bro, I'm going to be your sister from now on.
0: Michael's production credits for American Experience include Building the Alaska Highway, The Gold Rush, We Shall Remain, The Rise and Fall of Penn Station, The Bombing of Wall Street, and The Race Underground. Most recently, he produced, wrote, and directed Mr. Tornado, a one-hour American Experience film about a famed severe weather expert, which had a national PBS broadcast in May of 2020. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit them at filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And now on to my conversation with Michael Rossi. Joining me now is filmmaker Michael Rossi. Michael, welcome to Making Media Now. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Michael and I, uh, we've known each other for a few years, and in one of those sort of weird happenstances of life, we both have a history, no pun intended, and when I say talk a little bit more about it, the careful listeners will get the pun. <laughs> uh, we had a history working on a U.S. history-focused um, PBS series called American Experience. Uh, I was there for a chunk of time and um, left. And then I think, w- what was your what was your stay with? Uh, when did you start your relationship with American Experience?
1: Um, geez, let me get, turn on the wayback machine. Uh, I think. My first project as a production assistant was, uh, I want to say, like 2003. Okay. Um, you know, so it's, it's always been, as you know how they work, it's always been kind of these out-of-house project contract jobs. There was one of the many, many films I've worked on that there was one sprinkled in there where, where I was actually um, in-house working on a film, producing it. So it's kind of all over the, all over the map with that series.
0: 2003. Yeah, so I had been gone for a couple of years. And then Boston College also is another point of commonality between Michael and myself. Uh, I graduated from BC and Michael, you graduated from BC also, right?
1: Yeah, now I teach in the film studies program. I was a history uh, major, undergraduate in 98 and I got my master's in US history in um, 99 at BC.
0: Tell me about when you went from seeing yourself as a historian to becoming a filmmaker. When did the opportunity for having a filmmaker's view or a historian's view of making films, or is it a filmmaker's view of of teaching history or telling historical stories?
1: So it's, yeah, that's a question I, I have pondered and discussed many times um, since I've been in college. I mean, I think most people, um, at least, let's not say most, a lot of people who are in college, you know, are, are searching for what it is they want to do. And, um, you know, and in, in a lot of instances, they want to make a difference. Um, they want to make some sort of impact um, in whatever industry or field that they kind of follow. Somehow or the other, I kind of wandered into history. Um, it felt to me at that time to kind of offer me the, the most diverse uh, opportunity to learn about whatever subjects I wanted to, Um, and to have like a good understanding of what those disciplines or areas of the world parts of the world are about and increasingly the content in college you know was more and more you know influential on on what I wanted to do in terms of uh, telling stories I didn't understand I always say like how I I remember saying in college I say like how could I teach myself in high school all the things that I'm learning now that I, I should have known about you know and, you know, the variety of ways that I it was pretty mechanized how I thought about it. it was like, well, you know, I could, you know, I could, I could become a historian. But I remember in high school, I didn't really like to read. So, why, you know, a high school kid would not pick up that book, that niche book about whatever history I ended up in. And, you know, I could become a civil rights attorney or something like that and, and, and really help people. But I still wouldn't be reaching that, that you know, younger version of myself. Um, and so I said, you know what, I, I, I do like um, photography, and I, I do like movies, and I consume all of those things. And for sure, I, I'm sure there's a trade off involved, and there certainly is. Um, but you can provide impactful content um, to a much wider audience with motion picture. So at that point, somewhere in college, I kind of started I- exploring how it is that I can make movies. Can you think of
0: any either docudramas or documentaries that were formative for you in your high school or college years?
1: Well, I mean, the number one series that I think has always been uh, extremely important to me is the Eyes on the Prize series that was produced by uh, Henry Hampton's Black Side. Um, And a lot of how I got involved into the documentary uh, world here in Boston is because of the outgrowth of talent that came from that company um, in that series uh, I mean if I reach my hand this way you know there's all the people that I know like let's say at WGBH or something and then I reach my hand this way and there's all the people that I know that are now in New York and people that I've worked with and there's there's such a huge tree that comes from that um, place and I owe a lot to the people who have produced amazing films um, out of that company. So to- just for
0: the listeners who are not familiar with the series, Eyes on the Prize was a multi-part documentary series. I'm gonna say there was at least six episodes.
1: There was like Eyes on the Prize one, which had like a ton of episodes, and then Eyes two had even more. So yeah, a lot of episodes.
0: <laughs> and it, I would say that Eyes on the Prize is to the civil rights movement what Ken Burns uh, did for the Civil War, uh, and then what uh, also PBS did with the Vietnam War before Ken Burns took his crack at the Vietnam War. These were intricately told um, stories of both uh, individual striving uh, and advocacy, and um, just the you know the coming together of groups. Um, uh, landmark series, Eyes on the Prize. So uh, well worth checking out.
1: Absolutely.
0: So, so beyond eyes on the prize, uh, how about anything that fell into the category of maybe docudrama, uh, where you know a, a filmmaker wanted to take a crack at at history, but um, maybe wanted to be a little bit less uh, documentarian about it?
1: Well, I don't know where it falls in the timeline of my watching these films, but my, I mean, I'm particularly drawn to Errol Morris and his work. Um, uh, you know spoke a little bit about, I didn't have anything to do with any, you know, the making of any of his films, but I'm drawn to that personal narrative in that kind of, I hate this word. People always use it. Um, quirky. I think that's a terrible word to describe (laughs) any, any work of art, um, or any subject, but unfortunately it, it falls in, you know, into conversation, but it's just, it's, they're challenging, uh, story driven, explorations that I just love and he, and he takes all sorts of chances and um, experiments with visuals, um, you know, and, you know, kind of like the Howard Zinn approach of everything is subjective, you know, so why would I claim to be objective? Um, Which I totally agree.
0: I I think that is interesting, the quirky. And um, when you said he, um, uh, the interesting things he does with visuals and I've, I've always wondered, particularly coming from a place like American experience slash, you know, PBS, where at least my recollection of sort of the PBS model was more uh, form-driven than certainly something like an Errol Morris would do. Do you find like there's a needle to thread between giving service to the historical record and introducing that sort of subjectivity uh, via visual techniques?
1: That's a great question. I mean... I take the um, the fact checking side of uh, historical documentary filmmaking very, very seriously. Um, somewhere behind me here in my office are binders full of of evidence and and you know historical fact checking for the films that I've made for American Experience. Um, you know it's a requirement to fact check your scripts. which you know which usually are under twenty pages for an hour, um, but that. 17 to 20 pages is backed by, you know, over 1600 pages of fact check material. So that's extremely important however, I think everything again, I think everything that you put into your film no matter the kind of genre is is subjectively put there, you know, because that's what the um, I think that's what the instinct and the and the kind of artistic touch of a filmmaker is Um, and so When playing with things like recreations or kind of like more uh, kind of surreal or whatever um, actualities and that sort of thing, I mean, you do that with stock footage too. When you're, you know, when you're, when you know that there's one, like for the last film I made, Mr. Tornado, we we dove into the Nagasaki and Hiroshima bombings of Japan, which affected the character, um, Tetsuya Fujita. And, you know, there's, let's say, like, 20 reels at the National Archives that, that are the, you know, compilation of the, of the military's documentation, both in Japan and, and the United States. And you use that because that's what there is. So you have to convey, you know, emotion and meaning through representative footage. So whether you're doing that with stock footage or whether you're doing that with some sort of, you know, recreation um, of an actor, or some sort of nuance, I think if it's done well, and you can just tell it's like, it's like any film or editing technique, you know, if it's done well, then it works and you can kind of see when it doesn't work.
0: So we've mentioned American Experience a couple of times just to, just to give folks some uh, perspective here. I was the lowly uh, website producer for uh, American Experience for a few years and Michael actually made films. So uh, you just mentioned, I think your most recent one, Mr. Tornado. Uh, that Was that about a year ago that that aired? That aired in May of this year. So okay. It was a long year, Michael. I know. Was, <laughs> May seems like a year ago.
1: Well, I uh, finished it. I finished uh, the, the sound mix. I finished the color correction in Manhattan on the heels of the shutdown of the city at the beginning of March. And then I rushed home and mixed it remotely. I mean, I literally got out of New York. You got um, out just in time. As it was closing. So,
0: And what's the, what's the log line on Mr. Tornado?
1: Well, you know, he's kind of this um, Japanese American uh, researcher who was uh, kind of redefined a lot of uh, parts of meteorology. And in, instead of studying things on a large scale, he was studying things on a much more localized scale. He began this in the you know mountains of Japan where he grew up, um, and he is, in my opinion, he is known um, to have the ability to visualize what is invisible in weather, which was having a hard time kind of picturing itself in the you know the golden age of the you know the, the mid part of the 20th century needed somebody to, to help visualize it and in walks this uh man who had such an amazing visual technique and approach to um expressing um nature and so he he comes to america and ends up you know intensely studying the, the most iconic of american storms the tornado and earns the nickname Mr. Tornado years later. And it's a fascinating story. It's one of of my favorite films for sure.
0: And then some of your other American Experience titles is uh, The Race Underground, The Bombing of Wall Street. Which other ones am I missing?
1: There was, I worked on a couple of films for the, uh, oh, I'm sorry, there was the Rise and Fall of Penn Station that I co-produced. There was uh, a couple of films on the um, We Shall Remain series, which was a five part series on native history, uh, in America. So I worked on a film, uh, about Geronimo and as well, uh, about the wounded knee, the wounded knee siege in the 1970s. Um, sure. and there's another one. There's a couple others, the gold rush, two hour film on the gold rush, California gold rush and building the Alaska highway. So a lot of, a lot of them.
0: <laughs> yeah, quite a few. And, in in a very different vein, you're, you're also, uh, you recently won a Webby Award uh, for your work on a, on a um, PBS series called Stories
1: from the Stage. Tell us about that. So Stories from the Stage is um, basically, it's a, story, it's a live storytelling series, um, much like, uh, you know, storytelling in the last 10 years has gained a lot of momentum with uh, radio shows like The Moth, which I think a lot of people know about. Um, but you know we we have storytellers. They we invite them. There's a theme like the holidays or something, and they come. When we were doing it at the studio, they would come to WGBH, and um, it would be a huge event with 150 people or 100 and something people in the crowd. You would tell a story for six minutes on a stage, given on a given theme. Um, they're personal stories. They're real stories. There are some new people. Some people have been doing this for you know decades. And my approach to it as the director and producer, I also shoot it and edit it (laughs) Um, but I work with the executive producers very closely and we my kind of approach to it my pitch to them was to really approach it like a documentary film and just get out of the way and make it less of a tv show and more of a it's all about the story Um, so we've since gone virtual since the pandemic began in March so we've been filming busily filming episodes remotely and I've kind of recreated in my, my home studio a kind of multi-camera coverage of the laptop as the subject. So it's like we record them and then I have them on the screen and I then put that on a little pedestal stage in my studio and I film it with like all sorts of cameras and then I edit it. So it kind of, so, so you're, isn't...
0: you're, you're filming what you've already captured. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, because fascinating. as we know, the quality of, of remote recording is difficult. But what I can control is what I can create. So that's been the approach. And you mentioned the Webby Award. It was the People's Choice Award uh, last year. And, you know, that was, kind of, that was you know, uh, an amazing experience to be a part of that. So it's a great, I mean, every story is amazing. You know, you can check them out on Facebook Watch. You can check them out on YouTube. You obviously go to PBS. The World Channel is what produces this, which is kind of like a, a sub- channel of WGBH in Boston mm-hmm. uh, for PBS. So uh, when
0: you yeah. were doing these um, live uh, in the studio uh, were these live to tape?
1: We we recorded them live yes yep. and, okay. and then we you know we're not doing like switching and that sort of thing but we uh, then I take it all and edit it you know and, and we have like I said we have this like pre-interview get to know them for a couple minutes then we show the story and then we sometimes we we always exit interview them as well in case there's some sort of recap that we need. And yeah, it's, it's really fun. It's single
0: camera or multi-camera,
1: lots of cameras, lots Lots
0: of cameras. cameras. Yes. And you're controlling them all.
1: No, I have, I have camera operators. Okay. um, I think in the studio we usually have, I think I have like five cameras going, you know, and then like we have a host and there's there's a lot going on. So
0: are the five cameras going simultaneously and you put it together in the edit?
1: Yes, yes. So I kind of sync it all. And then I have this monster, um, you know, syncing uh, that I have to do. And, and it's fun. I like there's a lot to do. And I do all I do everything like soup to nuts for this. I do the color correction. I do everything wow. but the mix. Because I said, you know, I told them. I said, this is a, this is a storytelling show. The most important thing is going to be the audio. I want the engineers at WGBH to record the sound part of the look that we went for the interviews I wanted to record in their radio studios because they got those cool mics right. um, with yeah. exceptional sound so they're you know now using that material to create podcast material and um, that sort of thing and um, yeah so it's great working with with the uh, the in-house talent at at GBH there's a lot of you know the the lighting director is is amazing Phil Riley and you know the engineers and everybody I work with you know I I love being a part of it
0: tell me what different what different parts of your brain are you having to employ when you're when you're running an edit for uh for that series versus maybe telling a more linear historical story
1: well all I have to do is tell you what happened last year because I was doing both simultaneously yeah it's it's very different i mean in some ways the, the writing that is entailed for American experience for these one hour or whatever, two hours sometimes, documentaries, uh, historical documentaries is extremely intense. You know, you have to pack in a lot of nuance and subtlety and meaning in every word, every line. Um, like I said, you know, if there's 1600 pages of historical backing it, you know, fact check backing it, then there's a lot of meaning in these words. So, you know, you have to write it well, you have to pack in the the story arc and the emotion and get it right, but also make sure you're kind of hinting at everything that's really important. So then when I switch to the storytelling series, I mean, in some ways it's, I I, I shut off part of my brain, (laughs) you know, and I let them tell me the story and I get to listen, you know, and I still have to kind of hunt out because obviously you're dealing with cranking these shows out, you know, they're half hour episodes and you have to get them to time and it's like a puzzle. How many per season? So we're starting our fourth season now. It's just just premiered. There's about 23 to 26 per season. So, you know, we've done over, I'd say we've done close to 80 recordings of shows and there's three storytellers per show. So, you know, close to 250 stories. Wow. So, <laughs>
0: you, you had mentioned uh, earlier on that, y- you know, you had an interest when you were younger that obviously continued in photography. Do you feel that your skill as a shooter, as a photographer, as an editor, does that all feel like it's coming from the same place or do you feel like you, this was something that you felt you needed to teach yourself in order to tell the kinds of stories
1: you wanted to tell? I think probably the former. I mean, you know, I, I'm the youngest of four children. In an Italian family, my parents are both from Italy, and so I listened a lot you know because that 's what you do and i I kind of remind
0: me where you grew up, Michael
1: I grew up in western Massachusetts, uh, just outside of Springfield, Massachusetts okay you know small town outside of the out of the city and but you know growing up in a large family you know i i I observe that 's kind of what I do, and I enjoyed doing that um, i didn 't like have a lot of cameras growing up or anything like that or you know i didn't have access to much of that even at boston college it was there was no film program when i was there <laughs> you know i was borrowing my roommate's camera and you know getting you know favors to use an edit system if i could and so i i have a very practical kind of approach to most things in life and so i like learning things i like you know i like fixing cars i like doing home repair and that sort of thing and so i like figuring things out editing is very very mechanical in that regard so is is cinematography but there is this other kind of like, you know, the feel of it, you know, it's, it's hard. Anybody can learn. You can learn how to use Adobe Premiere or Avid in a week, you know, Mm -hmm. you can hit the keys and you can do the things, but you know, ask any editor, (laughs) you have to know how to edit. You have to know why things work. You know, that's why you read what Walter Murch preaches or something like that, you know, and you, and you, and you just study what you feel. But I always tell my students, I teach at Boston College um, in the film program there. I always tell them that, you know, you can't lie to yourself. You kind of know what is good and what is not. I can kind of help you get there. I can teach you. I can kind of point you in the direction. If there's some sort of technical stumbling block, you can, you can kind of get past it. So, but you know, just as a, why do I do all of these things? I, I just enjoy every part of the process. I really do. And I'm I'm super thankful that I've had a chance to have a hand in so many different parts of you know, filmmaking.
0: Can you pinpoint one of the aspects that you enjoy the most?
1: When I'm doing my own films, when I'm operating the camera, so there's one film in particular that, you know, this is a whole topic of independent filmmaking that I think is relevant. I was thinking about this before we jumped on the phone here is, you know, when, when you are working on an independent project, you know, a project that you begin with earnest and that sort of thing, it stalls, you know, because life gets in the way um, because you have to earn money and you have to start a family. You don't have to, but sometimes you do. Sure. (laughs) Um, You know, you have to take that next job and you, so there's all sorts of things going on. That's definitely going on with me right now. You know, the film that, that I'm referring to personally is The Master Palindromist, which I began in 2011 (laughs) and I filmed it. It's in the can, you know, in less than two years, but a lot of things get in the way so what happens getting back to what your original question is that project in particular is just me and the subject you know me kind of like observing him and what i really love about it is um you know when i look through the viewfinder or whatever the camera (laughs) device has i kind of escape into that into that you know 16 by 9 world and you know that kind of like point of me being an observer that really really kicks in in that moment And, you know, i much, you know, I I very much take the, you know, the Frederick Wiseman approach of, of, you know, Verite and kind of observing without interfering and that sort of thing. Just following what happens and literally documenting the reality that's happening. But of course, you're putting your own subjective and artistic impression on everything because where you point that lens influences everything.
0: With the um, teaching, what is the name of the course that you teach at Boston College?
1: I, I get to t- teach two and I alternate um, each year. I, I teach a documentary film history course and a docu- documentary film production course.
0: Okay, interesting. So, when when I was at BC uh, about 150 years ago, uh, and it was funny, I had taken all of these. Uh, it was um, John Mahilchek there when you were there?
1: Yeah, he's a good, good friend and colleague of mine, yes.
0: Yeah, great, great guy. And uh, myself and a college buddy became, we became pretty close with John. But I had taken a bunch of his courses and at a certain point, I think it was in my senior year, I realized, oh, it's estimated. I that have a film studies minor. People in the U.S. <laughs> so, without ever intending to have one. But at the, the time, BC disorder. had, if I recall correctly, 70% zero film production eating course eating disorder, disorder will And it was all more, you know, film due to theory and history of it. If it, you and think and so you so may forth. be struggling with an eating disorder, contact the National Eating Disorders Association When your or texting in either classes. My guess is that. They've two, been far more three, exposed seven. to documentaries or nonfiction filmmaking than students of a previous generation. And I'm curious how that forms both their aesthetic and their expectation of what's going to be
1: coming out of the class. Well, first of all, when I teach the history course at Boston College, I teach it in the same way classroom that I sat in as a graduate student when I took it with Professor Mahalchuk um, so that is a total trip and I, I definitely tell the students where's that. that classroom I may have sat in it it's it's the weird one in Devlin that you have to kind of go around the side of the building to get into and it's like absolutely student. yeah great course for you know teaching film a uh, great classroom but anyway so yeah it's interesting you know I, I tell I remind them they already know um, that they are probably the most expert consumers of media that have ever existed on the planet. You know, if you take one example for a website, if you, I I say, look, you can look at a website and in less than three seconds, you know, everything there is to know about how that website functions. If you're going to stay on that website and if it's, if it's a good website, I mean, if websites are even relevant anymore but in one one little upscroll on your phone you know like yep I'm out of here and so when it comes to you know the amount of media in motion that an imagery that is coming at at all of us and especially that generation i would say every 10 minutes cuz you're always checking your phone <laughs> it's massive so you know in some ways they're they're kind of i've noticed that they can be kind of just like mm, whatever You know, but I do think that their their rate of like sorting and sifting is so so quick. So what I do is I make them uncomfortable. And I intention this is kind of one of my my kind of signature styles in documentary film is I slow everything down. I love the long take. Mm -hmm. I love, you know, I love intentional kind of like making the audience squirm in their seat as to why am I still looking at this shot. So that you have to internally grapple with why you're looking at that shot. To me, that is is more powerful than figuring out something in After Effects and, and, you know, whizzing across the screen or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, there's a huge difference though. And it's interesting to think that I'm showing them like, you know, some later works of Errol Morris and I think it's like new stuff and they're like, <laughs> it's so old, <laughs> you
0: know. Are they uh, introducing you to nonfiction filmmakers?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to, it's hard for me. I mean, you know, again, having a family and, trying to work and especially now it's hard for me to stay um you know on top of everything that is relevant um and frankly i don't i don't necessarily want to you know because yeah. i get totally burnt out by films at, at times so like when i'm working on a film i don't necessarily want to sit down and watch another one all the time so yeah they they had it's the first thing i asked them what are your favorite films why are you taking this class you know and and they poof, you know it's like 30 new films, you know, (laughs) that I've never heard of.
0: Yeah. And interesting. I'm always interested, particularly in the realm of documentary film, particularly like when we're talking about history, Uh, when I used to think about documentary film and I, if I was going to draw a historical parallel, I would think back to the era of the muckrakers in journalism and, you know, the muckrakers being these journalists that were, you know, quite literally going to, rake the muck and uncover the 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 sordid crimes and corruption typically uh, ascribed to certain institutions but the documentaries that were most formative for me were those documentaries that sort of uh shined a light on uh either issues that uh, the institute certain institutional voices wanted to keep quiet uh, or to tell the stories that were purposely not being told so almost Filmmaking as a as a form of advocacy. That's a very narrow slice, however, you know, of the documentary film world. And I I do sometimes wonder if I had grown up in a in an era where you know nonfiction slash documentary media was you know was as abundant, if I would have come away you know with with the same impression. Do you feel like when your students arrive, those that want to become a filmmaker? Do you feel like they have, a, uh, they have a mission in mind?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's always different for everyone. But, you know, I can recall a number of students from my last production course that, you know, like me, they, they see the power of, of documentary um, you're drawn to it because it seems like an interesting career path if you can make it work, and it is. But they want to, they want to tell the stories that matter, whether it be about the environment or whether it be about, you know, communities that don't um, necessarily have their voices propped up enough. You know, and then if you come from those communities or if you come from uh, places of experience from a certain field, then that gives you the, the thing that's, you know, extremely important in being a filmmaker, making documentary is access and trust in order to tell those stories. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm surprised that, um, I don't necessarily, I, I, I understand that documentary is definitely more kind of thought of as being kind of like advocacy driven, um, you know, and I don't necessarily, I don't think that's wholeheartedly true. Or, you know, like if I think it's more of to me, it's more about telling story, just any story I feel like, you know, whether it's about a paperclip on my desk or whatever, or, you know, the history of, of Russia, (laughs) you know, there's, there's, there's beautiful things in all of, all of that, that you can tell. So, um, I'm much more drawn to the kind of like peculiar and less known subject matter and characters, you know, like Mr. Tornado was, was a very, um, interesting, unique person in history that you don't necessarily need to know about but there's a lot in there that is representative of you know immigration and assimilation in this country and you know and and mother nature you know and also kind of like our iconic kind of cultural storms of you know weather and that sort of thing but you know uh,
0: it's a very different way in yeah than, than coming you know with a top down this is exactly. the story of weather
1: <laughs> yeah. it, exactly that would have been a lot to bite off and here's a chapter called Mr. Tornado, you know, or, you know, the master palindromist to me is like, it, it's all about that. You know, who is this guy and why would anybody care about him? And, and there's just, there's so much interesting stuff that occurred in this person's life. And, you know, um, it's, it's about a, a fellow from Somerville Massachusetts who is a self-proclaimed master palindromist. Um, you know, and he, he writes, uh, you know, like a man plan, Planned Canal Panama. Those are your more known kind of, palindromes but any verse that can reverse itself spelled the same way backwards and forwards is a palindrome he writes extremely long dense complex palindromes that he's dubbed like epic palindromes and mega palindromes that have like thousands of characters um and it's like david foster wallace like they're very hard to trudge through but there's a lot of meaning in there sure and i mean if there is a word to describe this guy I'd say, i would have to say quirky is it but
0: <laughs> yeah that that comes across even in the very short trailer <laughs> uh, that you have produced
1: he 's an interesting dude for sure
0: so I know you 're super busy, but these the, the, you know how do you make space for these under the radar stories that are oftentimes evocative of larger stories you know while you 're still teaching courses and raising a family and uh, producing uh, producing a multi part half hour series for pBS
1: well it 's hard i mean it 's hard, and I think that 's one of the biggest challenges that I face now in my career is how to kind of, at a certain point you have to let go and you have to say, you know, cause projects do come and they'll keep coming hopefully, you know, and, and clients will come, you know, and, and I try to, try to do as much as I can that interests me. And, and also if I can help people tell their stories, but yeah, at a certain point you kind of have to say, no, actually I, and I had to do that. I was working with a, a, a filmmaker, affiliated with the filmmakers collaborative uh, trying to help them edit a film. And I had, I, at a certain point I just stopped and I said, you know, I I have to actually, I need to now focus on something of my own. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think a lot of that has to do with like where your heart is, you know, if, if, if it's something that you're passionate about um, and want to devote your energy to, you can only make so many films in your lifetime. Um, You know, and I'm not at the early stage of my career. I'm like probably right in the middle. So, you know, Reality kind of sets in, and and you have to make choices. Um, but it is hard; it's very hard, um, you know. So uh, things like this are important. Talking about it, you know, it's kind of like a therapy. <laughs> so I appreciate that conversation here, you know. Um, and we, and you know, we
0: just happen to be coming up on 50 minutes, which, of course, is the therapist's hour.
1: All right. <laughs> yeah, I should probably get off the couch. Then. Get
0: off the couch, Michael. <laughs> well, I do appreciate you taking the time, Michael, and I'm always interested in hearing what you have going on and how you balance it all. Uh, so, I know you're, you're going into season four of uh, Stories from the Stage. Remind us again, where can we find seasons one, two, and three?
1: If you go to worldchannel.org slash Stories from the Stage, I believe that's the URL. Um, but if you, you know, you can search for Stories from the Stage on, I know there's a big Facebook page. There's, there also is a YouTube channel. There are ways to find it. You can also go to my website, RossiFilms.com, and there's more information there.
0: Excellent. Um, and the American Experience films must be on the MX site.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Mr. Tornado is streaming now, so you can catch that anytime.
0: So if I remember correctly, that's AmericanExperience.org, or just go to PBS.org and you will most definitely find it. What's in the not so distant future after, series, after season four of? stories from the stage. I will not believe that you're working on one thing, that's for sure.
1: Well, you know, interestingly, I have a lot of smaller projects for smaller clients okay. that I've been doing, um, you know, whether they're passion projects for individuals or organizations that are trying to tell their stories. I really, really love trying to help people kind of like re-envision their story. And I know there are a lot of talented people in firms that do that as well but I don't shy away from that. And, you know, some of it's pro bono, some of it is just, just trying to help people out and just trying to get, I mean, I like doing, I like capturing, you know, motion picture stories. So that's really my talent and my kind of lot in life, I guess. So I try to apply that in every way. I'm not the most fun person to, to watch a movie with because I kind of pick it apart. <laughs> you know? Oh, you're one of those. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard, especially with like, you know, when HD televisions came out, I was like, oh my God, this is like perfect. You can see everything that they're doing. (laughs) Um, So yeah, but you know, it's, it's I I don't have any big projects. I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to resuscitate the master palindromist so that I can get that one out and into the, uh, I don't know what the, what the festival scene is like anymore as the world flipped on its head, but you know, just get it out there.
0: Well, we'll be keeping an eye out for that because when that is ready for the world, I want to I talk to you about it again. And uh, again, Michael, thanks for your time um, and good luck with uh, putting together season four of Stories from the Stage. Have a great holiday season and I hope to uh,
1: chat with you soon. You too, Michael. Thanks so much for the conversation. It was great. All right. You take care.